Welcome back to another episode of the Development by David podcast with me, your host, David McIntosh. This week, our guest is Daniel Bull. Daniel is the founder and CEO of the organization, The Early Careers Company, and the charity, The Early Careers Foundation. Dan created this company and charity at the beginning of a lockdown and has scaled it from one employee to 11. He's moved between two offices in a matter of months and has plans for global expansion. You might look at Dan and think, drives a BMW, he's 25, he's had this coveted career, and you might think he must be materialistic and that's where his happiness derives from. This whole episode is about that and how we can separate happiness and joy and how his intrinsic motivation isn't these material goods, it's by leading a team and that's what serves him, inherently serves others by doing and following this intrinsic motivation. Dan's personality really comes to life across this podcast and I'm just so proud to have been able to unpick this over the course of an hour. Let me know what you think of this episode. If you enjoy it, please, please, please share your social medias. It would mean the world to me. But for now, Dan Bull. Daniel Bill, welcome to the podcast, my friend. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thank you. Good to be here. How's your day been? What does your day typically look like? Uh, day's been good. Um, typically, my day has a lot more variety than today. I was on the phone from nine until about 15 minutes ago. So... 7.15 or thereabouts. Uh, my days normally consist of team meetings, one-to-ones with the team, trying to get through a kind of never-ending list of emails to reply to, and uh, and yeah, checking in with everyone, making sure we're, we're on track with, with where we need to be. Amazing. So what's the ele- elevator pitch of Daniel Ball today in 2021? How would you explain yourself? Oh, God. Uh, my elevator pitch. <laughs> well, I can't go for tall or good looking or charming. So I suppose I'll do something professional. Um, I uh, I run a, a startup business and charity. Um, the business is focused on building uh, infrastructure around early careers for companies and um, delivering hiring in, in a pretty unique way. And uh, the charity, my sort of pride and joy, is all around um, driving sort of social equality in the UK through helping disadvantaged young people access the commercial world. It'd be very boring to share an elevator with me, I think. <laughs> How long have you been doing that for? So this company and charity, um, eight months and 12 days. I had to look at the 16th there. So this, um, this all starts on the 4th of January. I'd, I'd spent a few weeks beforehand planning. Um, I, I previously was was in a business. I joined um, my, my previous employer when I was eighteen. I spent about six years there, and then um, and then that kind of came to an end last June. I finished in July, took a few months off, and then started this at the start of this year. What was it like starting a business during COVID? Did you just start it by yourself, or did you have some support at that time? No, just by myself. Um, it was funny, you know. I left my last company and and just. You know, my, my thinking was I wanted to entirely get out of the space. It took me several months, honestly, to realize that, you know, I loved the field I was in. I was good at it. I had a great network. You know, uh, initially my plan was like, get out and what's the most different thing I could do to this? Because I wasn't particularly happy, you know. Um, but no, just me uh, started it. Uh, I say just me, ju- just me from like a founding standpoint. Um, I was fortunate enough to have my my number two, Zoe, um, sort of start with me on day one. So she started as kind of number one employee on the 4th of Jan. And then, yeah, just kind of grown from there. And recently you moved into an office, right? 
We have, well, yeah, it's the second time this year. I've definitely done that wrong. I have no understanding of how commercial leases work, clearly. Well, I, mean, I do now, but I didn't eight months ago. Um, so, yeah, we moved into our you know, lovely new home in April and then moved out of our lovely new home in August because uh, we ran out of space. But, yeah, we've just moved into a new space now and we're loving it. From the outside in, it looks like you could run perhaps your business like completely digitally with employees. Is there a reason why you have an epicenter for everyone to join? Yeah, it's a tricky question. Uh, you know, I think maybe that perception from the outside that it can be run entirely virtually, is, I don't think it's quite correct. You know, I mean, give an example today. We, we, we have two, um, two of our senior team are, well, to varying extents, but religious Jewish. Um, and today was Yom Kippur. Um, and so one of them was working from home and one of them was entirely off and you notice it. And it's not because we're under-resourced, it, it's because the face-to-face -face contact, the ability of people to engage, interact directly with those around them. Bear in mind, you know, the company's the early careers company, right? Everyone we hire has just finished university or a school leaver or is, you know, early on kind of on, on their path and, and early on kind of in, in their not what the phrase is, just starting to find their way in the world. And so, you know, really we need we need to make sure we're around there. It's all well and good doing two, three hours of Zoom conversations a day. But, you know, ultimately a lot of it's, I don't have to phrase it, like auxiliary learning, right? You, you hear, because, you know, you learn because you hear others around you talk about subjects. You learn because you see people discussing things. You, someone asked me a question. It's, oh, well, let's go discuss. Let's go into the meeting room in five minutes. I'll draw it on a whiteboard. So, you know, I think I could, from where we are right now, I could run my current team completely fine virtually. Everyone would quite like the not having the commute, I'm sure. But I don't think I could have built this virtually. And I don't think that, you know, Maisie starting on Monday, the other three, four, pe four people scheduled to start after her over the next month or so, I don't think they could come in, be onboarded and be trained and developed as quickly as, as we plan on training and developing them in, without, you know, any face-to-face -face contact. Plus, you know, we buy everyone chocolate and apples and bananas and Diet Coke and wine and beer. No one wants to be at home. <laughs> uh, I want to come into your office now, Dan, too. Um, in the context of social mobility, like, we see concealment being like a, hu a huge problem. Well, I see it as a huge problem in terms of uh, generating effective role models. Have you seen your employees be more, I guess, vulnerable to you because they're in the office and they're in your company? They can feel your presence. They can feel how warm you are. You think that? I think of... you overestimate our warmth. No, I would say that the team much more quickly integrate and get to know who we are and who I am. You know, I mean, it's funny. I have Zoe is someone I've known for years, one of my best friends. My best friend from school, Sam, is now one of our associates. Like one of the things that those two have repeatedly repeatedly pointed out was that you know I'm, I'm the same person at work as I am at home as I am with my family as I'm with my friends as I'm at conferences like I don't you know I'm, I'm I'm broadly kind of the same person in whatever context I'm in and so I think it's more that people get to know you know me and it's not really me I mean I'm I'm one 11th of my company at the moment right I'll be one 25th by the by you know April or whatever, it, it's not really. It's not like the Dan show. It's it's about everyone. It's about everyone building a culture together and getting to know one another. And I think you get to learn who people are. We had someone um, called Richard who started last Monday, and I already know I would be friends with him. He's a great guy. I trust him. I I think he's a a really like top quality person. Just a generally really good chap. And you know if I'd have had. And I have very little time in my diary. You know, if I'd have had 40 minutes a day on Zoom with him, I'd hardly know him by now. 
you know so i think i think the virtual the virtual stuff is great for some reasons and for some people it's great for like mid-level employees i think it's challenging for managers directors and brand new people it's only my personal opinion i think i, I could be wildly wrong on that but i certainly don't back my ability to build a you know million pound revenue business without meeting anyone you've been expanding your workforce quite rapidly what are your guiding principles when hiring new people into both the early oh, careers no, I'm anyone no i'm kidding <laughs> um, we have um five and i say this all the time and i always forget a couple so the first thing we look for is kindness the phrase is inherent kindness so if we think if some the old thing people say, if they're not nice to a waiter, they're not a nice person. One of the things we think is when we meet and think, would they be nice to a waiter? That's one of the questions we ask ourselves in our process. The next one's intelligence. We look for, you know, bright, sharp, you know, people with fast processing speed, intellectual people. I don't mean based on background or university or class or degree or A-level. I mean, people who can absorb, process, retain and use information quickly. Um, the next thing we look for is like, is like kind of intrinsic motivation those who really want to, you know, people who are just motivated. I'll give you an example. We we hired um, an intern called Alina. Alina, on the off chance you're watching this, hello. I wish I was in Tel Aviv as well. Um, she joined us for the summer for two and a half months. She was a friend of Zoe's from school and she was absolutely brilliant. I was gutted to let her go. There was a little unnecessarily optimistic part of me that I think she was going to stay forever and she never was because she had a job offer of, of, uh, in, over in, in Israel where some of her friends and family live. And I, um, I, I remember thinking it was her last two weeks and we were incredibly busy, really under the cosh. And she was there eight, 9 p.m. every night. Now we don't promote kind of a burnout nonstop work culture, but it is tough, right? We're a, a fast growing business where we, you know, we've doubled our workforce in six weeks, you know, and, and not from like one to two, you know, from like, five to 11 in, in yeah, I think six, six or seven weeks. And so, you know, it often are some real pinch points where we, we haven't grown quickly enough or haven't brought in the resource. And Alina recognized that. And even though she was leaving and stood to gain nothing in terms of bonuses, progression, you know, praise, anything, she worked nonstop for her last two weeks. And for me, that's intrinsic motivation. You know, it's that you don't need to do it, but you do anyway, because it's the right way to do it. You know, it, it's why it's why I don't just wipe my kitchen table. I also dry it so there are no smears. I don't need to. It's just what you're supposed to do. Um, and that's one of the things we look for. People who we know that if everyone was ill, they would sit there and crack on, do their work and deliver results. Um, the next thing we look for is curiosity. You know, one of the interesting things, we've got clients over, you know, five global. We're working in Singapore, Los Angeles, New York, London. Um, we're working with businesses from private equity to consumer goods, to e-commerce, to charities. So the thing that makes what we do, I mean, there are loads of things that makes it interesting, but a big part of, of what we do that's interesting is the exposure to and ability to learn about a really wide range of spaces and people and profiles and personalities. And unless you're curious, if you're curious, that stuff's dull. You know, I've got some very uncurious friends and they still don't know what I do seven years in you know so um so yeah curiosity is a really big thing for us and as predicted i've forgotten the fifth <laughs> <Edit that now. laughs> in terms of that intrinsic motivation piece if that's a value that's really important to you what's your intrinsic motivation what gets you out of bed in the morning oh christ i thought that'd come later in the podcast um i i think it changes honestly um 
I think it was wanting to improve myself, uh, prove myself, sorry, not improve, prove myself. You know, I think I'd had a lot of time in my previous company of, 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 you know, kind of being told they weren't bad people. They were, you know, good business, good people, nice, nice employees. I made a lot of friends there. Um, but, you know, kind of a constant feeling of like, you're not doing good enough. You need to do better. You're not as capable as you think, you know? So there was a, a prove yourself element to it. It's like, I can, you know, I swear on your podcast. You can swear all you want. Then. Well, I can fucking do this, you know? That was kind of, kind of the view. But it changes incredibly rapidly. You know, from week two, it was, I want to do this for Zoe. You know, she's come, she's taken a risk on me and my vision. Obviously, you know, David, from our previous conversations, as you know, we've got a, um, you know, a massive part of what we do is driven by social purpose, social value, you know, a kind of a real like charitable instinct. And I think, you know, that's a big part of it. I think I have been fortunate enough to have the most incredible upbringing, been surrounded by amazing people, fantastic parents, loads of privilege, you know, and I think what that's led me to, what that's led me to believe is that, can I just explain this? It's kind of a nuanced topic, isn't it? It's led me to believe that I've had a lot of luck and it's my moral responsibility to help those who haven't had the luck I have. You know, my I'm a massive lefty, as you've probably realised by this point. My parents are even more massive lefties, like to a ridiculous extent, you know, and I think I, I'm fortunate enough to have some level of authority and control and power and ability to change things in society. And, you know, I think if you know you have that and you don't execute on it, it's it, it, it can, things can start to feel a bit hollow as they did in my last role. And so I think really there's a drive for social purpose. There's also, frankly, as any entrepreneur, there's a drive for a good life. You know, I would rather live in a flat that isn't quite literally this with a bedroom upstairs. You know, there's also a drive for financial success. But for me, it's more around building something special. You know, the thing I love about business and charity and the commercial world is the people you meet, the work you get to do, the stuff you have to learn. And, you know, we work with some fantastic people across the world and across multiple industries. As I said, everything from oil oil and gas to private equity to charities and consumer products and renewable energy you know such a range and you know for me being able to to to, to run a company and an organization that can you know make the world a better place and improve the fortunes of of thousands of, of young people from from low-income families while simultaneously doing good work for interesting businesses and providing and creating a great lifestyle for, for myself and and my team you know what's not to like has there been a particular moment in time where you've went uh-huh this is why I do what I do yeah a few no, none none that you could tell by my eyes closing very briefly there none that like immediately come to mind you know none that's like yes this happened um there's a few and some of them are really small things I remember a client I've worked with for a number of years put on the bottom of an email um thank you as always for your support and guidance as a partner to our business and I remember thinking this is someone who I've got an enormous amount of respect for runs a fantastic company you know partner to our business those phrases mean quite a lot to someone like me you know I'm I'm, I'm here to do a good job for the clients we work with I'm here to help great people get great careers and I'm here to improve the lives of young people who haven't had the luck I have in their upbringing does that um moving into the office was a big one seeing you know seven people at the time who I enormously respect and care about and 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 who yeah matter a great deal to me walking you know beaming and smiles on their faces um at the office and the massive you know box of bloody Mars bars and bottles of mm -hmm. wine and so on that would organize that that stuff matters um so if I'm honest with you it's more doing a, this sounds so like 
stupid but it's more like doing a good job it's where people have you know I, I'm, I'm a 25 year old I run a brand new small business and there are some incredibly you know inspirational people who frankly have taken a risk on us in the last eight months you know there are some really brilliant people out there who have seen value in what we do care about the social cause and care about the vision we've got and taken a risk and turning around and saying we've done a good job haven't we and they go absolutely you fucking have you know that stuff that stuff matters also a few things i don't know how much you you know david about what we do well i know we've spoken about it but you know a big part of what we do is, is hiring right and we're set up to be the opposite to a recruitment company you know i ran a recruitment team for years and the sales and the bullshit and all of that it's just not me um a quite a proud moment was one of my employee number two um back in may calling up a client who wanted to offer someone a job and saying you shouldn't they're going to leave and you know part of me was like oh that sounds like an expensive comment but you know, really, that's what we want. And it's knowing that we're really aligned with the interests of the people, the clients, the, you know, candidates, let's say, and the communities we serve is, is something that matters a great deal to me. Also, my mum's finally happy. My mum was incredibly pissed off. I was supposed to go to UCL and study neuroscience and I turned it down for my last job. And my mum is now finally like, good decision. That's that's a bit of a win. What's coming to mind here is almost your origin story. I noticed that you worked from your way up from an intern to associate director at Wiser. Yeah. And you took like probably at a time what was called an unconventional route. At that point, did you have family members or people in your network that kind of doubted that your route instead of going to the UCL? And how did you how did you kind of stick to your guns and like negotiate that you were on the right track? Yeah. Um I, you know I mentioned earlier that I've been lucky and I didn't mean we had a Range Rover and food on the table, you know, I meant I grew up in, in a home and a family where we always had, you know, shelter and protection and all the normal stuff you get with being part of a family. Um, but, you know, I, I was brought up to believe I could do anything I wanted and that no matter what I chose to do, my family and my friends and my aunts and uncles and so on would support me unconditionally. So there was never a thing in my head that was like people would be disappointed in me. You know, I knew everyone would always be proud of what I did. I knew that if I was to end up as a street sweeper, you know, in, in Cape Town, trying to go somewhere quite far removed, and I was happy and I was living the life I wanted to live, then my parents and my family would be proud of being happy for me, you know? So that was never really a thing. I never had dad, mum, whatever, telling me what I could and couldn't do. But obviously a natural level of concern that I was making the wrong choices I'd regret. And I think what they've seen now, look, David, I wasn't happy for the last two or three years of at my last job, not happy in the way I am now. You know, I love what I do. I have amazing people around me. We do brilliant work. We're making the world a better place. You know, there's what's not to love. Um, so no, there wasn't much negotiation needed. It was generally a, if you think it's right and you've thought about it, we support you. And I realized I might be an odd one out in that regard, um, but no. There was concern that it was the wrong decision. But if you reflect on young Dan, what was his dream career as like a very young child? I know exactly what it was. 15 years old, I wanted to go and do a neuroscience degree, then a GDL and an LPC, I have no idea why. <laughs> I wanted to go work in intellectual property law in a pharmaceutical firm. I have literally zero <laughs> idea why I want. I think it just sounded cool. I'm a lawyer at Claxton Smith Klein. I might have seen it in a film. I don't know. That seemed like a good idea at the time. That seems like a sentence that doesn't traditionally come out the mouth of a 15 year old. No, that's why I didn't have many friends. <laughs> it seems like you had quite an understanding of what that was at that age. Did you think your peers had such the same level of understanding of the careers market then? 
No, it was the opposite. I mean, you know, part of it was privilege, part of it was interest, but a lot of it comes down to confidence, right? It's the whole thing with our with, with the foundation that I run. Well, I run, Jasmine runs, I, I fund and, and oversee. Um, you know, I, I it, it's a funny one and, and it's, a tif- it's a tough one to explain. It wasn't like, I didn't have anyone, I didn't know anyone who worked in pharma. Well, actually my mum's friend did, but I didn't really know her very well. You know, it, it wasn't down to, um, yeah, it wasn't down to exposure. It was down to confidence. I believe that I could do anything I wanted to do. And so it makes sense to find out what all of those things are. You know? Yeah. You put it this way, David, if I said now you can buy whatever car you want and I'll pay, you would find every car brand and model in the world, right? I mean, you probably wouldn't. You'd get an M8, but you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? If you know everything's available to you, you have a responsibility to yourself to find out what those things are. And I think that's what I had. But I also had a very fortunate upbringing and successful friends and family and and, and so on. Um, I think I was also quite enamored with like the bullshit when I was young. You know, I like the idea of working in the city and having a nice car and blah, blah, blah. And you realize those some of those things do matter. Some don't. I love my car. I have absolutely no like I want to live in Chelsea because there's literally nowhere I'd like to live less than (laughs) Chelsea in the world. I would rather live in a pond. You know, it's my worst nightmare. So I think, you know, know, some of those things change over time. Some don't. But when you're young, I same as anyone else is heavily influenced by TV and friends and family. And my brother, I've got two older brothers, nine and 11 years older than me, them and and the choices they make and and so on. We speak about your um, intrinsic motivation. Was there ever a time where your motivation was tied to material output, for example, either a salary or a purchase or where you live and did you ever have like a start realization that that didn't make you happy yeah exactly that in my last role it was literally exactly that that's why I left my last company it was exactly that David that I just you know I realized that earning lots of money and having lots of nice things didn't necessarily make you happy it's like you know it's it's nice to live in a nice place right it's nice to have a nice car it's nice to drink nice expensive wine and so on. Like, it, I, there's no point pretending those things don't matter. And I want to, you know, live on fizzy water in a shack my whole life. That isn't me. But by the same token, like those things don't fulfill you. And I realized <clears throat> I had a conversation with one of, my, one of my best friends. It was a, a colleague of mine at my old company. I remember talking about the difference in happiness and joy. And it sounds ridiculous. And it sounds like a sort of thing. God, I'm turning into my mother. I hope she never hears this. She's the sort of thing my mum would talk about. Um, and, you know, the difference in happiness and joy, you've got happiness which is you live in a nice flat you're eating a lovely meal and joy which is like you are happy to your core too happy to sing and smile you know and you you get that when you you know like when you want to walk into a room and kick your arm and legs arms and legs in the air you know that type of thing and I think you know money can money and nice things and nice objects and a good salary buy your happiness but I don't think they cover joy you know that's holidays with friends that's doing something you're proud of that's making the world a better place it's sticking up with your values it's your parents being proud of you or whatever Yes. In a similar vein, you speak about how proud you are that other people take risks within your business to join your company and, and such things. But as a 25-year-old young man, you've taken so many risks and so many sacrifices to get to where you are just now. Like especially your time. I know how busy you are. How do you cope with that? And I think this honestly is one of the misconceptions about me. I've been incredibly lucky. You know, I I got a job at a cool company with people that, like, you know, at the time I really got on with and liked. I enjoyed myself immensely for several years. I earned well. I left. I 
you know, I took six months off and spent it with my family, went on holiday, set up a company that from day one has done well and been successful. Like it doesn't feel like, yeah, maybe to others, they feel like risks, but to me, it, it doesn't. The risks, honestly, at the moment are just starting. It's one of the challenges I'm having. The risks are starting now, you know, that's, that's, that's the tough thing. Now I feel like I'm taking risks, hiring another class of five people, opening an office in New York. These are real risks. You know, will our contracts renew if we open those two international offices we're planning? Like, that's the risks like not going to university when I had a well-paying job like you know risks are quitting when you don't when without that job you don't have enough money to feed your family and backing yourself to be an entrepreneur I come from a well-off family I had savings I lived in a flat like they're not real risks you know real risks are you could be killed or go into poverty or lose your house I haven't taken risks I've just been fortunate and you know, operated within the parameters of worst case scenario. I go back and stay at mum's house and she makes shepherd's pie. It's not <laughs> that much of a risk, you know? Uh, that's but I know what you mean. Sacrifices, yes. Risks, no, I'd say. Sacrifices, yeah. I mean, it depends. I, I, I have, honestly, a lot of my... <laughs> a lot of my success, if I'm judged to have that, is driven by the fact that I don't really watch any TV. And not to say that others shouldn't. And... God, I hope my friends don't see this. The only thing I watch, and I do religiously, I'm very sad it's ending, is Holby City. Quite like <laughs> Casual Food, Good Doctor, ER, any medical dramas. But that leaves me with two hours a week of TV to watch. I don't come back and sit down for four hours and do nothing. I don't have a girlfriend. I live, well, with my brother, but on my own every day in the week because he stays with his girlfriend. So what else am I going to do? Sorry, I don't mean I would rather do anything else than your podcast. I mean, like, I don't mind coming back and working till midnight. I don't mind... Staying up to 11 a.m. emails, go to sleep, wake up 8 to 11 the next day, repeat. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me. It has no impact on my happiness. I know that, you know, it's about freedom, David. You know, I think one of the things that get people talk about burnout, I don't think I can burn out because I know at any point I can just stop. Any point I want, I can shut the laptop, turn off the phone, get in that car that you like and go anywhere <laughs> I want and book into a hotel and relax. And the, the fact that I have that freedom to do that means it's not fucking, it's not, a, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a sacrifice. It's not going to burn me out. Like it's, it's a choice. I'm making a conscious choice every time I work over hours or I work in the night or I work on the weekend. I'm actively choosing to do it because I want to, you know? Do you instill the same amount of control and freedom to your employees? Uh, within reason. Uh, actually, I tell you what. I think if you ask them, they'd say yes. I think if you ask me, actually, you know what? No, on reflection, yes, I do. Um, they can stop whatever they want. They, I think, I, I firmly believe they all know. They can say, "Dan, I'm struggling a bit. I need some time off." You know, we've got employees with different requirements. We've got some people who are gluten-free, some who have to leave early on a Friday. Different people have different people. Everyone's different, right? And the trick of being a good boss and the trick of building something special is that you love the differences. You don't tolerate them, you know? I love the fact that Olivia wanders out at 4.30, goes, Hag Samaya, because it's Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah. And everyone goes, oh, and everyone says, you know, have a meaningful fast. I like that. Everyone embraces it. It creates a special environment, you know? Um, so yeah, they do. I mean, one of the things I've observed, I'm not particularly punctual. I am for meetings, but not in the morning. Neither is any of my team. If I ever get there at nine o'clock, which is technically when we start, literally no one's there. People rock in up to half an hour late, but they also stay. I was with three colleagues at 7.15 this afternoon. I was with a few colleagues at nine last night. You know, it's no issue for me. People can come in late. They can leave late. They can come in late and leave early if they want. People know what they've got to do. And I trust and know that everyone is is bought into what we're doing and building and our vision. So yeah, I think they have the same amount, but I think obviously there's a thought in their head of, I can't take the piss. Whereas I obviously 
content of this <laughs> about myself and, and like I guess in reflection to what I see in, in my career and, and, and my colleagues is a sign or like a red flag that I see that they are lost for control or are looking for freedom in their careers that they create like a sub role or a meta role within their career for example I've done that I now chair our social mobility network because my day job wasn't as fulfilling as the stuff that I could have control over and what I also see with my workmates is that they create almost like a mini vacation at the weekend so they'll go out on a Friday night and have a special breakfast on a Saturday and then go out again on the Saturday night and then have another special Yeah, I mean, that's my weekend safer. I don't wake up and breakfast on Saturday. That's exactly <laughs> what I do. Weekends are a massively important thing. That's huge. Like, I stop. Friday, 6, 7 p.m., I stop. I don't do any work on Saturday. And then Sunday, I catch back up again. You know, right. I, work, I work kind of 12 till, or 11 till 8 on Sunday or something. But, um, you know, Saturday is like my day. How do you treat yourself? In what sense? Generally? Oh, vintage wine, massages, nice cars, whatever I want the whole time. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I treat myself pretty well. Yeah, I don't, I, you know, I, I, I know myself. I know that if I please edit that bit out, honestly, there are so many people who think I'm a dickhead already. That's not going to help. <laughs> um, yeah, I look after myself quite well. All jokes aside, I, I drink nice wine. I eat good food. I get massages. After I finished work on a Sunday, I go get a massage. Um, you know, I've... I, I, again, it comes down to fortune. It's part of the reason social mobility is so important because for all of the, oh, well, I went to a state school. Like there are so many things that even now allow me to do the things the way I do that other people don't have. I've got aunties, uncles, and parents where I can go to theirs and I will literally not be allowed to lift a finger. My auntie Angie up in the West Midlands, I went there last Friday. She literally would not let me pick up a glass or cup or anything for the whole weekend <laughs> so so many places i can go where i can just detach and relax and chill you know yeah. and again yeah. it's freedom that matters not day-to-day -day reality if i wanted to be at auntie angie's house and i wouldn't be able to lift a finger till i left you know yeah. the important thing is the freedom to choose the difficulty is i also have the you need to combine the freedom to choose with the intrinsic motivation because if you don't what you get is people just choose to do nothing right <laughs> yeah um yeah is that an answer? I'm not sure I actually answered the question you asked. No, de definitely, definitely. Um, in terms of, so you speak about how you often work until like 9 p.m. at night. Do you have like a morning routine that kind of acts as like a catapult to like spring you into your day? Uh, yeah, that's the one thing I have a routine. 9 p.m. would be generous. It's normally about 11.30. <laughs> I shut my laptop. Yeah, I do have a morning routine and it's super, super, super important to me. I don't care how late I am. I will cancel flights to come downstairs in my dressing gown, I sit, I have a glass of what this was, it's pink lady apple juice from Marks and Spencer. I have a strong coffee with half teaspoon of sugar, coffee mate. I sit, I read nonsense on my phone, flick through emails. I've got, I always have a copy of The Economist I subscribe to, flick through that. And I sit for like half an hour, 40 minutes. Don't know if this is good for your podcast. I'm also a massive nicotine junkie. So I have either my vape or a cigarette, depending on what day of the week it is. And I sit and I enjoy my coffee and I enjoy my apple juice and I just sit there and relax. And then I go and brush my teeth and get in the shower and so on. But that's the time where I come down exhausted and I go up full of energy ready to start my day. I also have to sleep a lot. I'm asleep by midnight every night. I don't wake up to late. So I sleep at least eight hours a night. I was looking at the playbook for the Early Careers Foundation and there's a, a insight or a statistic by Dell in it that says something along the lines of, 85% of the jobs that'll exist by 2030 haven't been invented yet. Mm -hmm. What excites you for the next 10 years? 
for me personally, it's just taking the next stage of my life. I'm 25. By the time I'm 35, I'll have a few kids, a wife, my parent, my mum, my parents will have grandkids. Hopefully, have a house in France and spend more time abroad, experiencing new cultures. I'll finally get good at cooking spaghetti carbonara without like scrambling the egg. That's a major. That'd be a major point. You know, if I could do that, 30 under 30 can cook, can cook carbonara. Um, Business-wise, I honestly don't know. You know, I'd like to be in a point, and, and we've had, you know, I can't be too specific because a lot of it's kind of still in the making, but, you know, I'd like to be in a point where we can help like tens of thousands of young people through the foundation. You know, I'd like to be in a point where it's not like individually you've really helped. It's like you've made an actual tangible difference in society as a whole in the UK. You know, there's a load of things I love about Britain, and loads of things I fucking hate about it. And I hate so much of this, like, you know, massive divide i mean you can see the lights behind me there are in flats that are valued a third of, of these ones in a dangerous area and they're just like one block behind you know it's you know things things are so not right um by the same token i'd like to build a big business and something i'm really proud of i don't know what form that will take or where that will be i'd like to do something global um Honestly, my main objectives are like have a nice house and a nice wife and nice kids and, you know, be in a position where I can also sound silly, but advance the lives of those around me. Um, I'm the youngest of three boys. The other two are being very slow about it all. So, you know, I know my, 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 my parents and he's 70 now, you know, so I know they'd like some grandkids and so on. So that sort of stuff's relevant. But for the most part, who knows, try and help as many people as possible with the foundation, build the company into a big global enterprise, get married, sort my life out, learn how to cook carbonara. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, right, right now, the Early Careers Company funds and fully supports the Early Careers Foundation. Do you think there'll be a point where it's the other way around? Not financially, but because of the impact the foundation has, do you ever think that will commercially drive the company? Yeah. I mean, frankly, I think honestly, it already is. I, I think it's pretty obvious from who I am and, and the way I talk and the type of people we have in the business that that clearly isn't an aim. Um, it already is, you know, people go, oh, this is interesting. I'd like to know more about that. We had it acts, I can't name with who because of NDAs, but we're in a pitch process where someone got in touch about the foundation. We told them just for context what the company that funds the foundation did. And then someone else from that company got in touch and we're now launching a big project next year. So there are elements of that. Um, honestly, I don't care. Like what I want to do is I want to give the foundation enough money roughly I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a significant proportion of our money, but I would like my company the year after next to give it at least seven figures. Like we'd like to donate at least a million pounds to that cause. Um, obviously got to go make it first, but we'll see. Fucked if I know how, but we'll, I'm sure we'll work it out. Um, so, so no, I don't think it'll ever come a point at which the foundation is there to provide commercial value to the company. What I do think is that the foundation will outgrow the company's resources. So what we'll do is we will fund the foundation, but we will have grant funds and grants that we issue and initiatives and programs and stuff. You know, I would love two years down the line if high net worth and corporate donors would fund us building an incredible new, you know, obviously, you know, our, our learning programs on an app, this incredible new you know, app and web-based learning program. So there may be times I think at which, um, at which, yeah, the, the foundation becomes more independent from the company, but not when it, you know, sort of funds it or provides a kind of a marketing platform for it. Like, frankly, from what we've seen so far this year and the way things look for next year, the company can stand on its own two feet. You know, the foundation's got an important issue. The company is there to create a great, do great work, get great people, great jobs, help great companies get great people and 
provide good careers for me and my team. I absolutely love that um, mission statement. So there's a complete fetishization of a startup culture, especially within like teenagers, perhaps those from like a low socioeconomic background. You've went through a corporate career that landed you as a CEO or as a founder. Some students and some teenagers might want to bypass that corporate career and take a risk. Do you think it's uh, do you think it's um, important for someone to start with their career, understand business processes, save up some capital, some savings, a safety net, and then take that leap? Or if there's a 16, 17, 18-year-old who wants to just jump into startup culture, should yeah. they take that risk? No, get the fuck into a startup. If you're a 16, 17-year-old from a less privileged socioeconomic background, come somewhere like my company. It doesn't matter where you're from, what you look like, what you sound like, what your mum or dad does. It doesn't matter what you're interested in. It doesn't matter what football team that matters a bit more. There are other <laughs> things that don't matter very much. You know, it doesn't matter what political party you support, although there's been a few debates, as you can imagine. Um, you know, go somewhere where you're valued for you. If someone comes into my business now and works like fuck and does a lot, you know, works hard, puts effort in, they will have a real impact. Doesn't matter whether they're a 16 year old kid from a working class family in Middlesbrough or a 23 year old with a double first from Cambridge went to Eton. Either way, they are enormously valuable to those around them. It's the perception is different to the reality. You know, you're one of a thousand. So it's how you sound and act and seem and what your managers think. Not, you know, we have got people who joined my business two weeks ago and we could not do what we're doing now without them. Full stop, you know? Yeah. And they could be black or white or Jewish or Muslim or rich or poor or disabled or gay or straight. It just doesn't matter. We still couldn't do it without them, you know? Yeah, that's, that's reassuring. I guess one last question. Do you have any regrets? Would you take any different path? God, um, wouldn't have started smoking. <laughs> um, honestly, no. I think, you know, the difficulty is, I think the only thing I'd say is that I joined a company, I gave everything to it for years and years and years. I left the company. I then wanted to forge my own way in the world. And in that, there's people you know, who I think I offer enormous value to, who certainly did a lot to help and support me, who feel hard done by. And that I don't like, you know, I built a team and worked with a team I was enormously proud of at my last company, most of them left, but, you know, did. And, uh, you know, setting up being in a competitive situation, people that I care about is difficult, um, especially most of them think I'm a prick. But, you know, no, honestly, like there's no option. What could I do? Like I could leave my industry and sector so as to not piss off someone who clearly doesn't like me. Like it, that stuff's largely irrelevant. You know, I think ultimately you've got to make your own way in the world. And I think the fact that there's this social purpose stuff, the fact that values wise, it so aligns with who I am, what I care about and what matters to me. No, honestly, no real regrets. I would have hired more people three months ago, but apart from that, that's just, that's hindsight, not regret. Do you have any role models? Yeah, parents. Parents, Tony Benn, the old Labour MP. Um, about it. And <laughs> massive compliment over showing mum that she'll love that. <laughs> um, my parents mostly. You know, it's it's you can be successful, you can earn good money, you can have a nice car, you can have a nice house, you can do all that without being an arsehole. You know, you can enjoy life and you can tackle the issues that matter to you. You know, one of the things my mum told me when I was 21 was that in the long run, no one ever regrets, no one ever looks back and regrets being too kind, you know? And I think there's all the time in the world for me to build the type of life I want. And, uh, you know, what I want to start doing now, rather than when I've got the resources is, is kind of improving situations for other people. You know, I'm 
my general view on the world, right? I'm kind of fine. I've got enough money. I've got a nice house. I'm doing all right. You know, it's other people that need the help, not me. And so, you know, if I can do something to help them, but also while doing, you know, help those around me and help myself, then win, win, win in that scenario. Dan, one of your acts of kindness today is coming on this podcast and bringing your personality to life. So, mate, I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. If people want to find you online or find the Early Curious Company or the Early Curious Foundation, where can they reach out? Uh, Earlycareerscompany.com, earlycareersfoundation.org, or whether well, you email me, I guess I'm down at Early Careers Company. I don't really have any like Instagram or anything. Oh, you, you, no, they can't follow me on Instagram. We have <laughs> friends on there. Uh, LinkedIn, then go Daniel Ball on LinkedIn. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate it. Yeah. No worries. Pleasure. Cheers, David. Good to be here.